Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebbekhausen and the title of our show today is The Good, the Right, the Just, Myanmar's View of Law and Justice. I would like to discuss the topic with Helene Maria Kuh. She is a senior researcher and research unit leader at the Danish Institute for International Studies, DIIS in Copenhagen. Anthropologist by training, she has done extensive ethnographic research and secu on security and justice-related issues in Mozambique, Swaziland and Myanmar, focusing on theoretical questions of violence, sovereignty and legal pluralism. From 2015 to 2021, uh, Ku coordinated a collaborative research on everyday justice and security in Myanmar, And currently, she's engaged in a new project on the climate conflict nexus in Myanmar. Welcome to the show. And our second guest is Nyan. Um, she will go by the name Nyan because she does not want to, or she wants to be uh, anonymous in this show, which we, of course, respect. She has um, a lot of experience in the field uh, in Myanmar. She is from Myanmar and her research focuses on political economy, social justice, peace and conflict. So thank you very much for joining us today. And um, let's start with a discussion. And I would like to start with a very recent and a very sad event. Um, on 25 July 2022, the military government ordered to execute four uh, democracy activists, um, Cha Min Yu, better known as Kojimi, uh, Pyo Zea Thaw, La Myo Ong, and Ong Thura Zong. The first two were accused of terrorism, uh, the last two of murder. Uh, These were the first executions carried out in Myanmar since the late 1980s, when the military government of that time renounced executions. After the executions, the spokesperson of the junta, Zomin Tun, declared, this was justice for the people. The criminals were given the chance to defend themselves. I knew it would raise criticism, but it was done for justice. So maybe, Nyan, you can start. So what is your take? Uh, on these executions and this kind of justification um, by the military spokesperson? I, I, I disagree totally. This is not justice for every, not only for Myanmar people, but every human beings on uh, earth who, whoever were experienced uh, the same, you know, injustice, the cruelty, The, oppre the oppressions, you know, like uh, like Myanmar people do uh, at this, mo I mean, since uh, February 2021. So, yeah, this is not a justice at all. Uh, and uh, this two person actually is uh, giving their lives to fight for the justice for uh, Myanmar people. And Myanmar people, as I think uh, many people on the world know, they first may opted uh, to choose uh, non-violent ways, uh, peaceful demonstrations against this uh, military coup d'etat. But um, we, I mean, um, the military people uh, cruelly, uh, very violently, inhumanly inhumanly uh, oppress the people uh, those who try to 
uh, use uh, very peaceful uh, ways of resistance uh, against the junta, uh, I mean, to fight for their justice. Yeah, so we have no choice except arm resistance. So, yeah, we all, most of the people in Myanmar now uh, agree that we really need to fight the Honda uh, through using armed revolutions because we don't have any choice and we don't really have any future at all with those people. Yeah, if as long as the power is in their hands, there's no future. There's no future for Myanmar people. That's why we really need to fight them uh, using um, yeah, um, resistance or um, revolutions against them. And those two people, uh, they wish um, revolutions uh, for justice and freedom, freedom for all Myanmar people. Actually, you know, uh, uh, for the case of Pyoziyato, uh, he and his mother were not informed that he is going to be hanged or killed, I mean, on a man Monday, even, even when they met on Friday. And for the meeting, actually, is not in person. It is even on a TV screen inside insane prison. So as they both were not informed that he is going to be persecuted on Monday, Pyoziyato asked his mother to bring his uh, reading classes and books and to pay some money for the prison authorities uh, I mean, for his uh, food or something like that. And his mother planned to give them on Monday. So this means they were not informed. They, they didn't even know that yeah, he is going to be persecuted. So that's very inhumane. You know, I can I can stand uh, when I heard that. So, I mean, once I heard the interviews of his mother, she is very stable when she was interviewed. But I I instantly I immediately broke down my heart and I cried. Even if I control myself, I can't control. I can't help crying. I can't help breakdowning. So this is very inhumane. Yeah, so how how can this be justice, uh, you know, for the people in Myanmar? So um, the actions of the, the military government suggest that it has shed all inhibitions. So executions are again being carried out and Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, whom previous military governments have only ever placed under house arrest, is reportedly in solitary confinement. So it looks like no, there are no inhibitions left. Helena, what do you think does this say about the current power struggle? Yeah, I'm, I very much agree. The justification for the executions uh, were not a sign of, of real genuine kinds of uh, justice. But what it does reflect in very scary ways is how the law and the judicial system can be instrumentalized uh, by a military that has illegally taken power and ousted an elected uh, government. It is consistently not only in relation to the execution, but also arrests and, and other kinds of uh, human rights violations, uh, actions around that using the law uh, as a way of justification, saying that according to the law, we did this and this. Um, so I think 
the way that the military operates is very much drawing on a long historical legacy uh, of an authoritarian uh, state that has designed the justice system and inherited a legal system and set of laws from a colonial government that was also using law as a means of control uh, uh, and repression has been reinforced after the military coup, but is nothing uh, new in Myanmar. We know that from the work of uh, uh, Nick Kiesman, who has worked on this uh, also uh, uh, prior to the transition in in, in 2010 and 2011. And what's happened uh, after the military coup is, is uh, also a strengthening of a long legacy of using the penal code to persecute people who criticize uh, politically and who uh, refuse to follow stringently military orders, both by the way that the military unit has amended the penal code to be able to allow it to arrest and persecute a broader set of actions uh, that uh, somehow it can place as, as, a, as a resistance to uh, the military, but also the way that all kinds of political acts are also criminalized. Um, and I think the executions in a way was perhaps not a complete surprise to those of us following Myanmar, but it was still shocking in the way that it really underlined to all of us how far the military junta would go in using uh, the law and the judicial system, the formal court system to oppress and to uh, fe create fear uh, amongst the, the population. I would like to look now maybe to the other side. So hundreds of alleged informants, government officials or people working with or for the junta have been assassinated since the coup. And the resistance group defend this tactic as necessary to the revolution's success. So there is no other way. Uh, or how do you look at these extrajudicial killings? Yeah, actually, I I disagree with these uh, extrajudicial killings. I mean, even though I totally agree with this um, uh, revolution and resistance against the junta, I disagree with this extrajudicial killings. Yeah, actually, I also uh, uh, know that uh, many of the people who uh, are killed by the people's uh, resistant forces, they are um, just uh, civilians, you know. And it is very difficult to uh, to know that I mean, if they are, you know, um, or, you know, things like that. It, even if with this, um, yeah, I mean, they are uh, really uh, informants. I mean, if they are an arm, then they should not be killed. So uh, we really, um, even if we have to opt uh, to uh, arm resistance, then we really need to think about uh, the, the ethical ways of arm resistance. And there are many uh, civil society organizations. They are also doing their best to to push or to um, I would say to advise the those uh, um, uh, people's um, resistant forces to avoid those extrajudicial killings. But we have to admit that this has yet to be successful. 
but we keep doing. So, uh, for example, the NUG government also uh, stipulating, uh, I mean, developing and stipulating how those kind of, uh, I mean, military ethics, you know, uh, things like that. I mean, code of conduct, I would say, code of conduct. And the the Yan University students and uh, the strikers, the famous, uh, you know, the I mean, the strikers, uh, like Tezasan, uh, many other, you know, Yan uh, strikers, actually they used to live uh, on the town uh, to maintain the demonstrations. They now move to the the rural area and then join the those uh, people's resistant forces. And then they also give the talks and trainings of those uh, military uh, code of conduct. So people who understand those uh, code of conduct, they are trying their best uh, to avoid uh, those extrajudicial killings. But we really need to do more. Okay, and Helena, would you like to add something to this point? I do also think that we need to understand uh, the current context as a com- as a, a, an extremely complex, frustrated situation where it becomes very unclear who are in certain situations who are victims and who are perpetrators, and these are very fluid uh, categories. I mean, just to give an example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that one of the village track administrators who we followed uh, resolving disputes and providing justice at the very local level was uh, assassinated at a community meeting, village meeting, uh, by uh, People's Defense Forces. He had been inserted or taken up the position after the coup and, of course, surrounded by allegations that he was collaborating with the State Administrative Council. But at the same time, you know, this sense that why is he collaborating with the State Administrative Council, the military, it's also well known from local voices that someone has to take up this position and he is maybe also negotiating or trying to mediate orders that are coming from the State Administrative Council. Whereas, of course, at the same time, he has the label as a collaborator. Uh, so this is a very difficult situation. We don't know because we haven't been able to find out if he was also informing the administrative council of where the People's Defense Forces were, allowing them to attack the People's Defense Forces, or where he was simply trying to sort of mediate a really difficult situation. I think these personalized stories uh, of what goes on on the ground uh, really shows how difficult uh, it is to to make judgments uh, at the moment. And I think in extension of that, of the dynamics going on in, in regards to, to PDFs and the military and military affiliates, uh, when it comes to questions of, of the application of law and justice, I think this whole field around uh, local administrators, village administrators, ward and village tract administrators it's also extremely important to focus on because in our previous research prior to the coup, uh, that focused very much on how do people actually get justice in the everyday, how are crimes and disputes resolved. These very local administrators played such a significant role and, and we actually don't know what ha- what's happening in this space. So, so there is a sense that, you know, do people in areas that are partly or fully controlled by the SSC or where they are ongoing fighting, do they even have a place to go and report? Uh, We know they don't want to go to the police stations anymore because the police is associated with 
military violence and this kind of instrumentalized use of the law and, and the justice system. So there is a sense of, of things being really up in the air. And I think that also creates this kind of, you know, self-justice, taking the law into your own hands. That's really uh, uh, very difficult to sit afar and judge uh, using sort of a legal, a purely legal uh, uh, framework. Um, so I would like to pick up this point and uh, maybe uh, talk a little bit more about your research. Um, so we can say that at least, at least in some parts of the country, like rule of law has collapsed and or that it does not work in a, in a proper way and that people have nobody to turn to uh, or are afraid to go to uh, law enforcement. But um, so I would like to learn a little bit more like And we can talk about the pre-coup era, about like the relationship of people in Myanmar to law and justice. And uh, how are the different, uh, how is it maybe different in different areas? I think that in some ethnic areas, it will be different to the Bama heartland. But what can you tell us about like, what is, and it, it's a generalization, but what is the, the perspective of Bama people or Myanmar people, ethnic people to law and justice? And how do they perceive it how do they use it how do they, do they experience it and maybe you can talk about the pre-coup time before and then a bit about the coup time and maybe Nyan, you can maybe tell something from your own experience and then helena can add up from the research in i mean the justice system since the pre-coup time in myanmar is very you know corrupted and people are not trusted even though we we have to appreciate uh, the state's efforts in uh, legal and justice reform uh, with the support of uh, uh, international yeah, uh, organizations and the civil society organizations. Even though we have some improvements, I mean, in uh, judicial reform, even, in, even to uh, integrate this informal and customary justice system uh, into the former justice system. Uh, but we have yet to be successful and we still need to go uh, quite far. Um, after the coup, I mean, the justice system, uh, I would say, uh, totally col collapsed. Uh, people you know uh, i mean the governance itself in many area is competing between the people resistant forces uh, and then yeah ethnic and revolutionary uh, governments and then on the other hand the sac so yeah is i would say uh, yeah totally collapse some of our current research we have yet to be uh, uh, published I mean, we we found out some of the, you know, uh, justice system uh, in which people rely on some of the uh, influential actors uh, in some of the areas, which is still under much of the control of the SAC. So, for example, uh, those who are uh, influential and uh, who are known to be as uh, either of either on either of the sides uh, people sometimes uh, go there and then uh, 
to negotiate, uh, rely on them to negotiate with SAC. For example, in one uh, of the Zagai areas in Zagai region, one person whose car was uh, uh, taken, confiscated by SAC, uh, accusing that he is supporting uh, the PDF. So he finally uh, uh, went to a town uh, influential person and then uh, asked his support. And then this town influential person went to meet this um, SAC uh, uh, authority and then, uh, I mean, to take uh, the car back. But uh, the car was taken, but only the people was released. Yeah, so those kind of things are happening. And then uh, we also have a lot of roles of the religious leaders in some of the areas uh, in which uh, many people uh, believe in Christianity. Yeah, so those uh, uh, religious leaders and uh, some of the civil society leaders, they are also uh, uh, trying to control the situations, uh, I mean, to balance between the People's Resistance Forces and SAC and uh, in order uh, not to be, I mean, this is actually also one forms of, uh, I would say, resistance. And at the same time, they also would like to stabilize the area. So they try to negotiate with the SAC and then uh, it's using like a hands-off policy. So don't, I mean, we, they were managed by themselves. Uh, uh, I mean, they give them uh, SAC messages, please just hands off. And then they also ask the the uh, the, the people's resistant forces not to come on the very civilian areas, uh, come to town to shoot or to make a bombings, right? So those kind of things are, you know, happening, you know, it's, uh, it's really depending on the people's management, right? So if I understand you right, it's like a, a very informal system depending a lot on specific people, like people influential, yes. like administrators or re respected persons or monks, I assume, in some areas. So, mm. um, and what can you say from your research, Elena? Is it like, how does it, is it connected to what we have seen before the coup and maybe uh, what has the coup made out of this informal system? I mean, talking about the, the, the pre-coup, you asked before about whether, you know, there were differences between the Bama majority and, 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 the, and the ethnic uh, or smaller ethnic uh, uh, groups, minorities in Myanmar. And I would say that our finding across the places that we did research is that when it comes to understandings of, of justice, how people understanding and what preferences they have in terms of where they go with social disputes or, or crimes, there was a very strongly shared, uh, not only a distrust in the state system, but also a shared view that the kinds of punitive justice, uh, this very strong reliance on penal code and high punishments, uh, rather than reconciliation and compensation and negotiated settlements was also part of why people preferred not to go to the to the state courts. And, and that was something that was shared, but then of course, cultural and religious understandings that vary across the country also played a role in the particular ways that people interpreted 
for instance, why were they victims of a crime or why did the social dispute occur would also be influenced by those ideas. I think that the distance between people's understandings of appropriate justice, a sense of justice if you are uh, the victim of a crime or have a dispute in relation to the state system can only be reinforced uh, at the moment because what was already a distance or a divide is reinforced by the way that Ubade or law is so attached uh, to control, to authoritarianism, to a sort of a non-caring system for the people, the sense that the judiciary doesn't really care for the population. The main uh, task of the judiciary is not to uh, find resolutions for people, make them feel a sense of justice, but to punish uh, this very punitive idea of the, what the judiciary and the justice system is in Myanmar, I do think has been reinforced. But how people then deal with reporting cases outside of the state system in the current situation, we are not able to do ethnographic research, but the kind of community researcher uh, uh, data that are very much showing that to even a greater extent than before, people have to negotiate very situation specifically how they get justice, where at least before the coup, there were some kind of institutional stability around village leaders, around ward administrators. And I would think uh, without us having done the kind of in-depth ethnographic research that those places now where the PDFs are fighting the military in the urban areas, people don't have anywhere, any stable place to report at the moment. But the difference would be in those areas that are still strongly controlled by the ethnic armed organizations where the SAC doesn't have uh, control. They have old, old justice systems that we have also researched and, and uh, they would still be operating. They would be strained and they would be under pressure because they have a lot of people coming in. They have a lot of IDPs. They do have fighting going on as well, but those would have a likely more um, institutional stability. And then we can perhaps take up later also the new institutions that are being experimented with now uh, within this uh, field as part of the resistance. Yeah. Definitely, I would like to come to this point. But before we go to that, I would like to uh, take up that you said like the law system in the past was very much a punitive law system and it was oriented toward this. And so I would like to dig a bit deeper. So, for example, in Germany, we have like a constitutional law. It, I would like to understand, so what are the main sources from which ideas of law and justice in, in uh, Myanmar are coming from? So uh, if I don't know if you can say something about it. Like, So what is like the philosophical or religious framework where people think about law and justice have to be oriented towards or framed in? Myanmar, um, I mean, at this moment, the former system is largely... Uh, dominated by uh, this colonial era, you know, uh, legal and justice system. In other things, um, Myanmar also uh, have this uh, culture of, um, uh, you know, democrat and things like that. This is kind of uh, informal things. And then they are also 
uh, laws and uh, principles that has to be uh, followed by the the king and the monarch yeah so things so i think uh, the whenever we have come to this legal and judicial system those kind of um, traditional and customary is still linking but the formal system is is still uh, applying the colonial era uh, system so we really need to change those kind of things okay helena please yeah so uh, i'm also not a lawyer by uh, training or legal expert in in within state legal uh, systems but what we know about myanmar is that they inherited a positive law system from the british as opposed to a common law and positive law is a law that is written down in the books by a central authority in this case the colonial authority whereas common law builds uh, on the customs and laws of the people and this is a huge difference and there was never made that transition never made this kind of for real incorporation of customs uh, within the 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 laws of, of Myanmar, yes, there are uh, religious special laws related to family disputes uh, connected to the main religions in Myanmar, but this is only and very isolated uh, around uh, family law. And so we have a system that is very important, that is very external to, um, to uh, common laws and customs in, in Myanmar. So that's the first thing in terms of uh, then how people uh, themselves based on religious and, and, and cultural uh, norms. Uh, these are very strong, uh, depending on who you speak with, because people are some people are also educated and have ideas about international human rights. And I think at this moment of resistance, people have very strong uh, uh, general ideas about uh, justice and injustices. And, and some are also rebelling against, you know, uh, the use of Buddhist uh, 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 beliefs and terms and terminology because it's also being abused by the military, uh, including around ideas about what's just and what's good and what's right and what's wrong. Uh, so there, there are interesting things going going on here. But otherwise, the kinds of justice that we met in our research uh, was very much a focus on social ha harmony and much more on collective than individual rights in in the preferences that people have and this of course are understandings of justice that are that are not particular to to Myanmar but that are also shared in other similar contexts where there is a big gap uh, between uh, the state system and and ordinary people living their everyday uh, everyday lives because they've never really had an experience of a law or a legal system or judiciary that actually <laughs> Follow due process that actually, you know, was focused on enforcing rights and understanding people's customs and norms, but that was an, an imported and, and uh, positive law system that at the same time uh, uh, adopted a highly punitive approach uh, to to law. So there is a huge discrepancy uh, between between what the formal system has been able to provide, even in the in the opening years. Uh, prior to 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 the coup as well, there were efforts to reform. There were strong forces inside and amongst internationals who were also aiding the process. We have ourselves contributed to those debates about integrating more customary, uh, you know, towards a more common law kind of understanding. But we were also operating with a judiciary where 
you know, even under the NLD, half of the Supreme Court judges and High Court judges, according to the studies of Melissa Crouch, were still military appointees. And, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court today is, is comes from the military and his position runs out in 2028. Uh, so, you know, uh, there's a long legacy that, that has been inherited from the past. If I get both of you right, you say that um, there is a need for a new emancipated development of a new law system. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I would like to understand maybe like there are three different ideas about rule of law. So there was the, um, the idea of the military before the coup, and maybe it's pretty much the same or similar to what the military now follows. And then there was the NLD, which also talked a lot about the rule of law. It was what one of the most important catchphrases from Aung San Suu Kyi as well, we need rule of law. And then there is maybe like a, a new system or a new idea about rule of law right now developing with the NUG. Um, and maybe you can, you can try to help us sort out these three things. So what is different and what is maybe uh, new or what is old? I would say uh, the rule... Uh, the legal and judicial system before the political uh, transitions, I would say that is, uh, let's say, before 2010, right? It's actually is uh, <laughs> ruled by, ruled by gangs, right? Ruled by gangs, uh, ruled by, you know, uh, power, you know, ruled by force. And yes, NLD trying to uh, reform that, trying to change that. But I think, uh, I really doubt that NLD really understand about the concept of rule of law. And I, I think, uh, even though they are trying to reform, this is still, uh, uh under the concept of rule by law. So some of the people said, I mean, the rule by law is much, <laughs> much uh, better than rule by gangs and uh, fo by force, right? Uh, but uh, they still, I I think, don't understand what this rule of law is. So, and then now the new system, and you said uh, the the NUG is trying to reform. Yes, I heard that they are uh, trying to make this kind of legal system. And in, in some of the cases, They also uh, try to uh, control this kind of extrajudicial killings, but has yet to be successful. But um, this uh, new judicial system, I mean, they really need to think about uh, our future nation, which has to be very much uh, inclusive and then uh, to, to have uh, carefully Uh, considerations, this self-determinations of those uh, minority ethnic groups, whenever they are going to reform this judicial system, they really need to think about this self-determination for the, the minority. And some people uh, might say that this is the, the judicial system which is relevant to the federal democratic state But I would say whether it is federal or other forms of the, the, the nation building, we really have to remember is this 
this concept of self-determination. Right now, those uh, and the people from NUG and then NUG itself is still mar- largely dominated by the NRD, uh, which is uh, the party uh, largely supported by the majority uh, Burma people. Uh, and I really concerned they are mentalities of centralization and uh, and this will be really relevant to our uh, the, to to the future that we really um, yeah expect and uh, what we really are now uh, waging a revolution for right so they really need to uh, consider about this concept of self-determination. What do you think about this concept of self-determination or a federal legal system? We had discussions during our research uh, prior to the coup, actually back in 2016, about uh, a federal justice system, also with uh, some of the ethnic armed organizations or their judicial uh, win. Uh, and I think these discussions had just started to begin. And and then, you know, it, it takes a long time to have these kind of discussions, but I think they were really helpful and really useful. Uh, and they were often connected with discussions about community-based justice and very localized uh, systems. So there was a process going on in, in, in this uh, direction. And uh, I think that thinking about reforming the justice system in Myanmar in the event uh, that the current crisis and the military junta uh, withdraws, um, is definitely the way forward, but it would also mean abandoning uh, the definition uh, of laws and procedures and institutions stringently from a central, and then just allowing different regions or different states or sub-states to run those decentralized uh, parts of the court system. It would very much have to involve uh, allowing uh, within each sub-state to define their own legal systems and legal codes, having space for that, at least within certain areas of of law. And then as in federal systems in the US and other places, there would perhaps be certain types of cases and certain types of of problems in a state that would need to be dealt with uh, at higher levels. But a lot of the everyday justice problems can be resolved at a very decentralized level according to locally adapted and locally driven uh, norms and procedures uh, as long as they follow standards of, of you know gender equality and 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 there of course as we also identified in research there are areas for reform there as well and this was also a dialogue we had started to have with male elders for instance in the naga hills or in in the NMSP areas of Mon State, you know, these conversations about how can we become, you know, more sensitive to gender dynamics, how can we ensure equality? And so these were debates that were starting to be brokered, but they have to be done in in the participation of the people uh, involved and not something that is defined uh, and directed from, from, from a central uh, body, even if we are talking about free and fair elections and those who are voted into power, there has to be this kind of participation in defining also the laws and procedures and institutions.
So on June 30th, Frontier Myanmar published a report about how the NUG is trying to re-establish rule of law, at least in parts of Magwe and Sagain. And a people's police force is has been created. Uh, and and uh, first of all, I would like to know, uh, why is this important? And uh, do you know anything more about how concrete this is and, 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 and how it works? Or do you have any information? I would be really curious to learn more about this. I personally don't know how far it is. I wish, uh, and, and I mean, we do plan to, to continue this community uh, research. Uh, your question of why they do it, I think there are different uh, uh, reasons. I think the overall one is that when you build a justice system and a police force, those are the basic elements in, in sovereignty and state making. So it's a way of controlling and administering uh, a territory and this is very much going on in Myanmar at the moment mm. uh, is that if we, it's not just a, a fight between people and of stopping the SAC and defending civilians it's also very much about expanding the territories of each of the competing actors and here the ethnic armed organizations also have a long history in Myanmar of creating their own court systems and police as part of claiming territories as part of administering their areas. And the other part of it is, of course, the question of uh, of legitimacy and also genuine uh, care and welfare for the populations living within those areas. So there's also a question of a, of a genuine social contract going on here. I mean, we've seen rising crime in Myanmar, which is quite unfortunately a common effect of a situation like the one we're seeing in Myanmar. So there is also a need for mechanisms now that the village tract administrator and water administrator system uh, has more or less broken down in a lot of uh, uh, places. And building those kind of institutions can also afford the NUG, as it has done with the ethnic armed organizations in the past, legitimacy for outside uh, observers. They are serious about this. They're a government. They want to run institutions that we are familiar with also in the international uh, arena. So, so those would be my answers to the question of why. Yeah, I totally agree uh, with uh, Helena said. I'm, I, I would say I'm really glad if the people will be out of the rule of SAC. Of course, I'm the one who will be happy, but still I'm really concerned that this uh, NUG and their supporting groups is doing this kind of uh, setting up of police and people's administration units in terms of of the territorializations or controlling if they are very much overwhelmed in this sense there will be a lot of undesirable things because people uh, as i told you earlier themselves they they have their mechanisms of management to be safe uh, I mean, to be secured, you know, and uh, to make this kind of uh, space, which is, uh, I mean, uh, safe by themselves, you know. So we really need to uh, take this kind of thing into things into considerations whenever they are going to set up this kind of police and administration. And another thing is we really need to take considerations of the the systems uh, already set up by ethnic uh, revolutionary armed governments, you know, uh, whenever they are setting up this people's administration force, 
But uh, as far as I know, they, uh, the NUG is still very, uh, I think, uh, weak in, uh, in collaborating with ethnic and revolutionary governments in setting up people's administrative mechanisms and, and then the police force that at the latest things. So, and then this uh, is also really uh, not consistent with what they are aiming for the, yeah, yeah, federal, uh, you know, federalism. They really need to, yeah, take care of that. So I think that a law system always helps to establish trust, but you need trust in the law system or in the society to have a law system. Like, like there is a, I think there is a close connection between trust and mm. law or yes. justice. Um, and I would like to, as you just said, Nyan, that um, there is not enough communication between the NUG and the EAOs about this. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say that this is mainly because of mistrust, which has a long, unfortunate, long tradition mm -hmm. in, in Myanmar? Or what, what are the reasons why, why this uh, discussion or communication does not happen? Yes, uh, partly this is the long histories of mistrust, but there are also uh, several things uh, of um, several things uh, behave or conducted by uh, NLD uh, that uh, also uh, leading to the mistrust by the ethnic and revolutionary organizations. But I also would like to say that the mistrust is not only between NLD and the, uh, the ethnic and revolutionary governments and organizations, but also uh, mistrust is exists among the ethnic and revolutionary groups. And then this actually is sometimes worsened also because of the relations between uh, NLD and some bilateral relations between NLD and some of the ethnic and revolutionary groups. So this kind of bilateral, bilateral relations also make more cleavages, you know, uh, between the long-term mitras among NLD and EROs and among ERO themselves. So we really need to think about how we, we are going to do this kind of multilateral dialogues in this time. I don't think, uh, even though um, uh, we have, I mean, the EROs and NLD have uh, several you know, talks and relations, I don't say, uh, I would say this, the, the true multilateral dialogues or political dialogues has yet to be happening uh, among themselves, you know. So we have some, which is uh, very good. We have some uh, uh, around like uh, February 2021 and March and then, and then this actually leading to the developments of federal charter, particularly uh, I would mention part one of the federal charter. This actually is very uh, useful. And I would say this is actually the result of uh, the very, I would say short uh, political dialogue among some of the EAOs and NLD. And, and so we really need to keep up with this kind of things. Uh, and uh, to uh, to and then they have to continue or and or resume this kind of multilateral political dialogues. This will surely encourage trust among the 
amend those uh, political stakeholders you know regardless of you know i mean i mean i this i mean is not to build federal democracy i mean i don't say federal but in any other forms that all party agree thank you so as we are drawing to a close i would like to come to a to a last question uh, and i would like uh, to ask helene first like the rule of law always has the function of preventing violent excesses and steering life in a in a civilized direction in in societies so now we are witnessing the collapse of the rule of law and excessive violence in myanmar again so uh, what does this mean this collapse for a later return to a society governed by the rule of law for reconciliation and for what we can say make like a civilized kind of coexistence i think it's a, it's a hard question because i even prior to the coup we could not speak of a a, a formal system that was ruled uh, according to the rule of the law that was practiced according to the rule of law uh, uh, not discounting uh, corruption uh, then there were also extreme inequalities in a way that the law was uh, applied and we've already talked about the militarization itself and 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 how the courts were built up around uh, securing military control before that so i think it's it's not about returning to something <laughs> It's about uh, building something completely new. And I think that's also why uh, Myanmar people these days are talking about a revolution for good reasons, right? It's not just a return, but it's actually something quite new. I think there are, you know, two issues in this. One is the very long term sort of building up of a, if the Myanmar people choose to have a federal system, the building up of a federal uh, democratic system and how justice place into that and I've spoken about how I at least would recommend that is done it's a long term process and the other part is of course the question about transitional justice uh, a concept that I remember when I came to Myanmar the first time in 2014 I was told ooh don't use that that word because except if you are out with the Karen national union people or other ethnic uh, uh, minority organizations this is a very sort of like tattooed word in a Myanmar context Uh, where probably, if you look at historically at it, uh, you would probably end up in a more sort of, like I know from Mozambique, in a more sort of like an amnesty kind of mood. Let's reconcile, let's go past this, let's not hang in the past, as we saw also during the the the, the, the past the prior coup uh, five years of government on, under the NLT. But I do think that following what has happened since the coup, that conversation needs to be had uh, and it's already going on going on technically in the sense that we have organizations like 45 rights and others who are collecting evidence of atrocities and crimes against humanity uh, um, sometimes based on evidence from soldiers who have left the army i'm studying that at the moment as well but that conversation definitely needs to be had and and uh, it doesn't mean that everybody who has broken a law or done something wrong after the coup should all end up in insane prison that's not the kind of transition of justice uh, i'm talking about yes we could speak about some of the really responsible actors uh, going through a, a criminal court process but i'm talking much more about having deep and honest uh, conversations about the atrocities the traumas the experiences of, of oppression and moving on on from there and 
we can't use any model, whether it's Rwanda or South Africa. We, there has to be a Myanmar uh, solution to this that's defined and developed, uh, uh, collaborated amongst Myanmar people uh, themselves. So maybe, uh, Nyan, you can say something um, at the end, like uh, what would you think is the, the one most important thing to achieve or to get closer to this new law system which is needed or um, in the future? I would say when um, we are talking about this new law system, the people in Myanmar, I mean, I mean, and then uh, those who are now leading the uh, the revolutions, they really need to understand what is justice and uh, justice for everyone. And then they also really have to think about this concept of rule of law, not rule by law. As far as we experience and we are observing, they are still in the mentalities of rules by law. That is, uh, they want to use legal system as a tool of ruling and governing the people. And this is not a justice uh, for the people. This is not the way it should be. So they have to change this mentality. And then when we also, when we have to understand this justice, we also really have to think about the the justice uh, for everyone in Myanmar, include, including Rohingya people. So for uh, people uh, from NLD uh, and NUG people, even though they are now uh, talking about setting up this new legal system, I, I don't want them to, to undermine uh, the justice for uh, Rohingya people, you know. I mean, they, I mean the, the new law is to be inclusive. Uh, and then we also, we always have to know that as long as we cannot bring justice for every minority groups in Myanmar, including Rohingya people, Myanmar will fail the revolutions. And Myanmar will always uh, suffer this um, problems of injustice, even if they are now fighting for this military junta, they never be uh, free from it. Yeah, they will still be in this vicious cycle. So they have to re always remember justice for everyone. Yeah, thank you very much. So um, if I understand it correctly, it's like not only a revolution against the military, but it's also a revolution of the own mindset, which is yes. needed in, in Myanmar. And um, that also includes like the establishment or the development of a new idea about the Myanmar justice system, like not taking it from somewhere what develop an original own justice system for the country. So thank you very much for sharing your insights and uh, your knowledge. Thanks for listening to Myanmar in a Potshell. Please tune in again next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.